Uh, the title of our message this morning is Repentance, the Choices. Here is you can turn your Bible to Revelation chapter 16 again. That's where we will be this morning. And that our last hymn was, was very appropriate, the love of God. When, uh, when we get to sections like this, particularly in Revelation, we can uh, tend to get swept up in the judgments and the wrath of God being poured out. That's exactly what this is all about. But it, it behooves us to remember that God is still in the midst of this wrath being poured out. He's still loving God. He's still willing to accept any person on the earth during this tribulation period in the future that we're studying about. If any person will turn to him and trust in him, he will gladly receive them. Uh, but nevertheless, his wrath is being, going to be poured out on sin. And people will be faced with a choice, just like they are today faced with a choice of whether or not they will trust in God, whether or not they will turn from their sin and believe in him or continue in their ways. And according to our passage this morning in particular, uh, unfortunately, it would appear that the majority of people are going to stubbornly uh, maintain their own way of thinking rather than trusting in the Lord. And this is not only true for people in the future or not only true for unbelievers, but it is also this, the concept behind this is very applicable to us as believers also, that we have the choice in our lives whether or not we want to <laughs> repent, turn from what we are doing, what we are thinking, to trusting in God and his word and the way that he wants us to live. That's repentance. And the choice is ours whether or not we want to do that, whether or not we want to reap the consequences of the path that we may find ourselves on. And we get a, a very good negative example in our passage this morning, a, a good example of what not to do as we make our way through Revelation 16. We find ourselves here in our uh, portion of the, the outline of the book of Revelation that we've been in for a while because, well, this is the meat of the book. The, the se future seven-year tribulation period is what is being described from Revelation 6 all the way through the end of, of Revelation 19. And that's where, where we find ourselves the tribulation period is described. Obviously, we, we get more detail in the book of Revelation than any other book, but that doesn't mean that Revelation is a, is a standalone book and we have all the answers from Revelation about what the future holds. That's, that's a very bad mistake that people make. In studying this book, if we remember all the way back to the beginning, Revelation 1 and verse 3, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. There is a great blessing to reading, heeding, reading, hearing, and heeding the things that we find in this book. And we've 
said a number of times that, that that great blessing comes from truly understanding what is written here in Revelation. We have to understand a lot of other portions of the Bible. And when we do that, there's a great blessing. When we heed the applicational lessons of this book, like, oh, say, for example, uh, not repenting, turning your, turning your back to God and not accepting his uh, conviction and these kinds of things in our lives, uh, there are consequences for that. And so we ought to, we ought to be willing to do those things. Uh, there's a great blessing in reading, hearing, and heeding the lessons of the book of Revelation. But again, the meat of the book is chapter 6 through 19, and we, uh, we saw that the tribulation period begins with the seal judgments. That first seal judgment begins the tribulation period. It ends when Christ comes again in the seventh bowl judgment that we will probably get to next week, at least begin to describe that. Uh, we saw there were a number of intermissions in the chronology where we get a lot of extra information. That first one was in chapter 7. The second one was rather long. We spent time, Revelation 10 to 15, learning all about uh, the Antichrist, the false prophet, the mark of the beast, all of the kind of things that, that Revelation is known for are wrapped up in that intermission where this extra information is being described. And then last time we moved into the bold judgments, where we find ourselves now in our study of the book of Revelation, which I believe is the second half of the tribulation period described here in, from 16 all the way through 19 events of the second half of the tribulation. So last time we saw this voice coming from heaven uh, that is really the voice of God. Verse 1 of Revelation 16, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. And we see these seven angels coming forward. They have bowls or vials you may see in, in your translation of, of the Bible. Uh, essentially means the same thing, a container from which you can pour something out of. In this case, it's the wrath of God that's being poured out on the earth. And not just uh, for no reason. God isn't just being capricious here. He is, he is pouring out his wrath because the earth deserves it. And the people of the earth who have rejected him deserve this punishment. That's not me saying it. It's God's word saying it. And, and uh, he is able to do this because he is righteous and holy and perfectly just. And vengeance is not ours as much as sometimes we would like to. I, I don't know about you personally. I uh, can have a tendency to, at least in my own thinking, uh, want to be the one who exacts justice on some of these people who do horrible things in this, in this world. That's not our place. That, that is not our place to do that. It's God's place to do that. And according to his word, he's going to do it uh, primarily in the second half of the tribulation period. And that's uh, this 
brings up this chart that we've studied uh, several times or seen several times, the tribulation and its judgments, three sets of judgments, seals, trumpets, and bold judgments. Uh, and we'll get into kind of the chronology of that uh, some more today. But the tribulation does not begin with the rapture, but the rapture does happen before based on a consistent, literal translation of the Bible. Really, the, the, uh, when we do that, when we translate consistently, literally applying these principles to the word, the conclusion we come to is that the rapture is before the tribulation begins. That doesn't start the tribulation. But at some point after that, the tribulation will begin, and it begins with that first seal, that rider on the white horse, kind of the, the imitation Christ we saw, uh, signing some sort of covenant or treaty with the nation of Israel in the world. And uh, that is what begins the seven-year period, according to the book of Daniel. And when we take the truth from Revelation, the truth from the book of Daniel, chapter 9, we come up with the idea that, yes, that is a seven-year period. And it begins with that first seal. And then the seventh seal happens. That unleashes the trumpet judgments. And then that essentially brought us to Revelation chapter 10, where we had our second intermission. And we learned about this abomination of desolation, this uh, image that's going to be set up in the temple, that the world is going to be forced to, on pain of death, worship. And that is the midpoint of this seven-year period. Again, book of Daniel, chapter 9, Revelation, uh, say that that happens in the middle. So first seal begins the tribulation. The middle is the setting up of this image. The end, we will see, is the seventh bowl when Christ comes again. And so today we'll see these, uh, the fourth, fifth, and sixth bold judgments being poured out. And the lesson or the takeaway from that is about repentance and the choice that we have to make in that regard. But we'll see this fierce heat that comes upon the earth, the total darkness that will come upon the earth, and then finally the intense drought. Uh, and in this, uh, we see the, the earth dwellers, as they're called, or the unbelievers during this tribulation period, and their uh, almost psychotic rejection of God in this. It, it's horrifying, in a way, actually, to to see these people who will know and understand exactly where this judgment is coming from, exactly why it's happening, and reject it. It's pretty scary, to say the least. And, and this is a very dangerous position for them to be in. But we also need to realize that it's a very dangerous position for us to put ourselves in as Believers, you know, this idea of the health and welfare, uh, prosperity gospel, if you will, uh, is really just a false 
gospel. This idea that as believers, we're not going to face any bad situations or the bad situations we do face in life or because we just don't have enough faith in these kinds of things. That, that is completely uh, contrary to what the Bible has to tell us. Uh, God does not promise to give us health and wealth because we are believers. In fact, we can face some very bad situations in our lives. And sometimes it can be from our own making, our own decision making. Other times it's not. But the fact of the matter is that when those things happen, we need to be turning to God and trusting in him every moment of the day, rather than turning from him and hardening our hearts and and that sort of thing, as we can end up with very dire circumstances, similar to the circumstances that these people are facing. Sometimes uh, our problems are because of our own sin. And so we need to repent. We need to change our mind about those things and trust in God, just like these people that we're learning about today need to do, and unfortunately don't. But it begins with the fierce heat. Notice Revelation 16 and verse 8, it says, the fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given to it to scorch men with fire. Men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues, and they did not repent so as to give him glory. They know exactly where this is coming from, and yet they are stubborn in their unbelief, and in fact, not just unbelief, but their blasphemy towards God. So in the fourth bowl judgment, the, the intensity of the sun is somehow uh, magnified, increased. And uh, you read the commentaries and people will say, well, you know, oh, it seems like the ozone layer is destroyed in this bowl judgment and that allows the sun to, to have a greater effect on us. And well, maybe, but it says the fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun and it was intensified. I would take it as meaning just that, <laughs> that it's the sun that is somehow increased in in its intensity. Now you'll remember that we have talked about this other this theory of how these judgments are. We've mentioned this several times, this idea of recapitulation that that it, that we're not seeing a linear timeline of the judgments that that what we hold to is the seal judgments happen, then the trumpet judgments happen. Then the bowl judgments happen, and that is the seven-year time period. Well, there's this other idea of recapitulation that says the seal judgments describe the whole seven years. The trumpet judgments describe again the whole seven years. And then the bowl judgments for a third time describe the seven-year period. And oftentimes they will go to these bowl judgments and say, see, this is, this is where the similarities are. It's describing the same thing. And, well, there's a problem with that. And particularly in the fourth bowl and the fourth trumpet for just for one place. They're both, well, they're both talking about the sun. Well, okay, that's true. 
If you remember back to the fourth trumpet, Revelation 8, 12, the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun and a third of the moon and a third of the stars were struck so that a third of them would be darkened and the day would not shine for a third of it and the night in the same way. Well, it's exactly the opposite. (laughs) Exactly the opposite thing is happening here. Uh, There are a couple of theories about what is happening in that fourth trumpet. Is it a, a third, the sun becomes a third less intense, or it just doesn't shine for a third of, of the day as long as it normally does. Whichever one of those it is, it is a, it is a de-intensification of the sun, not a magnification like we are seeing here in the fourth bold judgment. Exact opposite. So here again is that recapitulation view in a different uh, laid out in a different way. The seals, trumpets, and bowls are all describing the seven-year period, just one, or uh, each one is describing the seven-year period. So essentially, we're getting the seven-year tribulation three times. And now people who hold to this view uh, are, uh, in large part, are considered to be dispensationalists. So you may, if you get a commentary or whatever, you may come across this at, at other times. And, uh, you know, it's not the end of the world, but it's not a proper understanding of the truth. And unfortunately, a lot of times this view is tied in with kind of uh, sensationalistic teaching, and some even believe that some of these judgments are already happening and these kinds of things. And that's when you're getting on the borderline of not really being dispensational anymore, not really fitting under the umbrella of dispensationalism. Instead, we see a telescoping view as, as a better understanding of what's happening in these judgments. And, and it's a great picture of the judgments getting more and more intense as we progress through the seven-year period. So the seal judgments lead to the trumpet judgments that lead to the bowl judgments uh, in this telescoping view with the breaks in the in the narrative, if you will, to kind of like a hockey game. Hockey season just started last week. So uh, we have our first intermission and our second intermission where we review things that have happened and look forward to some other things that are going to happen uh, is, a, is a really good view. And this idea of recapitulation, it well, it just doesn't really hold up when you compare the various judgments uh, in detail. And so notice here in this judgment that men are scorched with fire and heat. Uh, I don't know if you're paying attention to it, uh, but there is in this, in the world that we are living in today, there is a turning back to paganism and, and in various uh, areas of life, it's, or it's becoming more and more obvious that these things are happening. They're not even trying to, to uh, hide it anymore. Look at the opening ceremonies of the Olympics and these kinds of things. You can see it there on, on display. 
the opening of uh, CERN, C-E-R-N. You can look that up for yourself and watch the video of the opening ceremonies of that building if you want to see literal paganism on the world stage happening. So God, uh, as we saw in Proverbs, kind of being personified as wisdom, mocking when people reject him. Oh, you want to worship the sun? Well, here you go. Worship that. People uh, being literally set on fire, being burned by the power of the sun. Men were scorched with fierce heat that the uh, verse nine there, it's not like, oh, you spent too much time out at the poolside or at the beach. No, this is being burned by the power of the sun. And we see this being prophesied in the Old Testament also. Isaiah 13 and verse seven, speaking of the tribulation period says, therefore, all hands will fall limp and every man's heart will melt. They will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look at one another in astonishment, their faces aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger to make the land a desolation. He will exterminate its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will not shed its light. Thus I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the, of the ruthless. I will make mortal man scarcer than pure gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble. And the earth will be shaken from its place at the fury of the Lord of hosts in the day of his burning anger. And we get a we kind of get an overview there. Isaiah is given an overview of many of the events of the tribulation, but you see both that uh that uh fourth trumpet judgment and the fourth bold judgment all in one thing. That happens a lot of times in the uh, in the Old Testament prophets. That's why Revelation is so important, where it really chronologically lays out these events for us, gives us a more clear picture of the overview. The sun being darkened when it arises, the moon not shedding its light, and the sun burning people. That, that's what Isaiah saw and uh, portrayed for us. This fire... Uh, uh, being described there. Verse 8, this, uh, the bowl being poured out upon the sun and it was given to it to scorch men with fire. Men were scorched with fierce heat, the NASB says. There's another use of that Greek term mega. It's mega heat that is coming from the sun. We're not talking uh, Death Valley and 140 degrees. This is, this is unprecedented heat and fire from the sun that is being unleashed upon people. And you would think, oh, uh, perhaps we ought to change our minds about God and his son would be the answer. But no, that's not what the people do. Instead, verse 9, men were scorched with fierce or mega heat and they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues, and they did not repent so as to give him 
the glory. That term blasphemy just means to speak speak against God. You can blaspheme a person or or anything, really. Here, the object of the blasphemy is God, but it is to speak against God, to demean him, or injure his character. And uh, the futility of, of that is can be kind of humorous if we think about it. Like, you know, uh, it, when I was a kid, it, you, we used to have the saying, and I just clearly remember a, a teacher telling us, well, sticks and stones can break our bones, but words will never hurt me. That, uh, <laughs> we kind of need that again. Because now people, you know, the words that you say, even words you say on Facebook uh, 10 years ago can uh, land you in jail. Uh, but, but blasphemy, on the other hand, is speaking against a person, in this case, speaking against God in an attempt to demean him or, in, or injure his character. And that's what these people are, are doing here. And we can think, oh, you know, how stupid can they possibly be? Well, be careful. We can do the same thing. And not, we can cause people to do this in their lives. And that ought to get our attention. As a believer in Christ, whether you like it or not, you are Christ's representative on this earth. That's what the term Christian really means. Little Christ. That's you, believer. And we ought to take this uh, responsibility very seriously because uh, here we see in this, God's in Revelation 16, God's judgment being poured out and then people rejecting God because of that. Paul says in Romans that our actions can cause people to do that. In this case, it's directed towards Jewish people, but it, even if you're not Jewish, that doesn't give you an out here as a as a believer, you can do the same thing. Paul says, Romans 2.17, but if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, yeah, does that apply to you? You're, you're, I'm a Christian. I live according to, the, to God's word. I trust in Christ. And, I, and I'm doing the right thing, that I'm a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having the law, the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. Oh yeah, that, that, that's me. You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say the one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law through your, break, through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. Big wake-up call to us should be that we can cause people to blaspheme God by our own disobedience. We ought to be careful in the way that we are living and acting, particularly among unbelievers. But these people would not repent. Metanoeo is the Greek term. They would not change their mind about God and what is happening 
to them. It's very clear that they, that they understand what is happening to them. That God, the one who has the power over these plagues, he is the one who is bringing this wrath, this judgment upon the earth, and they, they would not change their mind. That's what metanoeo means, is a changing of the mind about God, about his provision for our sins. Uh, It can have a number of applications. Oftentimes we do think of it in terms of receiving eternal life, that uh, we need to change our mind about what we're trusting in, to trust in Christ and his provision for our sins, but it, it applies to our everyday lives as well, not just the receiving of eternal life. Are, are we going to continue in this rebellion against God uh, in whatever it is in your life or in my life? My, my avenue is different than yours, and yours is different from the person sitting next to you, but are you going to continue in that or Are you going to change your mind and trust in Christ and his provision for your daily life, your daily walk with him? Uh, These people, on the other hand, would not do that. That's why it says in Isaiah 26, even though they know these judgments are coming from God, they refuse to change their minds about it. That's why Isaiah says in Isaiah 26, 20, come my people, in this case, my people are Israel. This is not a rapture verse uh, in Isaiah. We only find those in the New Testament. Come my people, enter into your rooms and close your doors behind you. If you'll remember, that is Revelation 12, uh, where the people are kind of taken away, the nation of Israel and probably believers in general are taken away into a place of protection. That's what Isaiah is describing here. Hide for a little while until indignation runs its course, Isaiah 26. For behold, the Lord is about to come out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity, and the earth will reveal her bloodshed and will no longer cover her slain. These people have all of the information right before them. The wrath is being poured out upon them. They refuse to repent. They refuse to change their mind about God, about the consequences of their sin, about the consequences of sin on this planet in which we are living. We do not live and move in a vacuum. Our sin has consequences. And sin in our daily lives can have consequences. So from time to time, we need to repent or we can face drastic consequences. 1 Timothy 1.18, Paul says this command, I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping the faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected. They, they made a choice after they have believed. They, they made a choice to reject the teaching and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Doesn't mean they're now, they once were saved and now they're not. Uh, it means that they're saved people, 
but their faith hasn't developed and, and it has not carried out its purpose, which is good works in the life of the believer, and they've shipwrecked their faith. It's not going to accomplish its purpose. And then Paul even names names. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. Uh, these, these are not unbelievers that Paul has mentioned here, and they are handed over to Satan to be punished, to be taught not to blaspheme. Uh, Paul says there. Next, notice the fifth bowl judgment where we have total darkness. Revelation 16 and verse 10. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and his kingdom became darkened and they gnawed their tongues because of pain and they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and they did not repent of their deeds. This fifth bold judgment being poured out on the throne of the beast and his kingdom. This is a, a reminder to us that this is a literal kingdom. This isn't just some kind of spiritual uh, story from a great religious text that is just describing life in general. No, this is describing in literal terms a future kingdom that will exist upon this earth, and it, and it is the, the kingdom of the beast, the kingdom of the Antichrist that is going to envelop the entire world. This is true from both the Old and the New Testament. We're not just uh, making these things up to, to scare people. Uh, Revelation 13, 2, And the beast, which I saw, uh, this is describing the Antichrist. The first beast, if you'll remember, I saw, was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion, and the dragon, Satan, gave him his power and his throne and great authority. There is a coming future kingdom that a lot of times people uh, these days refer to as a one world government, if you will, or there's a one world religion that's coming upon the world. Well, that's what's described in Revelation. This kingdom that's going to envelop the entire world. The entire world is going to be forced on pain of death to worship this beast, this antichrist. That's a religion. And you can, uh, we could spend weeks and weeks de describing how the church is, uh, unfortunately, Christendom is falling prey to the pathway that is leading to this one world religion. I I really don't like the term one world church because, well, it's not a church. The church is us. The church is believers in Christ. This is, this is something else. This is a religion, not the church. Church has a very specific uh, meaning in the scriptures. We ought, to, we ought to use it that way. Daniel, again, he describes this coming world kingdom that's going to be ruled by the Antichrist. Daniel 7, 
23, if you'll remember, back in Daniel, we've talked about these, the four beasts that, that Daniel sees in a vision. Three of them have already happened, kind of, well, four of them have happened. One of them is going to be revived again, to happen again in the future on a, on a greater scale even. Uh, these four kingdoms being uh, Babylon, uh, Persia, Greece, and the Roman Empire. Daniel 7.23 describes this fourth beast. Daniel was very interested in this fourth beast. It was different than the others. It was more uh, magnificently awful, if you will. Daniel 7.23, thus he said, this angel that Daniel is talking with, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth. Rome didn't devour the whole earth. Even though their kingdom was, was really big, it wasn't the whole earth. Revelation describes a kingdom of the entire earth. He will tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them. And he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One. And he will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and a half a time. That's three and a half years. But the court will sit for judgment and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated and destroyed forever. That's, uh, if I can find it, that's why uh, the, the Antichrist, yes, he comes on the scene at the beginning of the seven year tribulation, but he has ultimate power for this three and a half years, a time, one year, times, two years, and a half a time three and a half years, half of the tribulation period, the Antichrist is going to have sway over the entirety of the earth. And uh, so this is describing a literal kingdom with a literal person ruling over it. And this fifth bowl being poured out upon this literal kingdom that is to happen in the future, and the kingdom becomes darkened, pours it out on the throne of the beast and his kingdom, Revelation 6.10, and his kingdom became darkened, and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. Now, this is, this is not something that is unprecedented, this similar event happened in the Exodus time. Exodus 10, verses 21 through 23, then uh, says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward the sky, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even a darkness which may be felt. Now, I've been in some pretty dark uh, places in my time, uh, being up north or up in Canada, and you wake up and, and it's dark. Uh, you can't see <laughs> until you can get outside of your tent or your cabin or whatever, and then you see the stars like you've never never seen them before. Well, the in the Exodus, they went outside and they didn't see the stars. It was a darkness that can be felt. That's pretty dark. 
So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky, and there was a thick darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the sons of Israel had light in their dwellings. So a lot of the commentaries will say, well, something similar is going to happen in the tribulation period. There'll be total darkness, but somehow believers where they are taken, they will be able to see, but the rest of the world is going to have this darkness that can be felt so much so that it, it's causing pain. And the people, it would appear, have nothing to do but sit in the darkness and contemplate the pain from these sores that they have that were poured out on them in the first bull judgment. A pretty awful existence, to say the least. And uh, it's not just something that happened in the Exodus time and will happen again in the future. All the prophets predict this happening as well. Zephaniah just being one example of this event being predicted, if you will. Zephaniah 1.14, near is the great day of the Lord, near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord, in it the warrior cries out bitterly, a day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. So thick that the people won't be able to see one another. And then they'll finally decide, oh, right, God was right. Uh, We need to turn from our wicked ways and trust in him, trust in Christ. No, that's not their reaction. Their reaction is blasphemy and not repentance. And notice that they are blaspheming because of their pain and their sores. Uh, Revelation 6-2, that first bold judgment poured out upon them was a loathsome and malignant sore on the people who had the mark of the beast, who worshipped his image. You know, a lot of these uh, events, I think that people earlier on during the tribulation period, they're probably going to try to come up with some sort of natural reason for why these things are happening to them, uh, similar to what we see today. You know, oh, a hurricane hits Florida. Oh, there's never been a hurricane like this. Certainly it is due to man driving cars. And uh, it's obviously it's, it's climate change. I mean, there's just no other conclusion. So pay me more taxes, uh, get rid of your car, stay in your house, eat bugs, and just be a surf for me. Uh, that ought to, <laughs> that's obviously <laughs> sarcastic. You, you ought to be aware of these things. When they uh, try to promote this agenda, they're trying to control you and enslave you. As a matter of fact, it has nothing to do with what's actually happening in the world. And in the future, I think they're going to do the same thing, except even on a greater scale. They're going to try to come up with some scheme to blame some something that's happening, uh, these judgments on some some kind of natural cause. Well, here, by the time we get to the bold judgments, no, they're not doing that anymore. This is God, and we shake our fist at you, God, even though you're burning us with the sun one moment, 
And the next day, it would seem, I think there's a period of time, a, a passage of time here, more than a day. But the next thing you know, it's complete darkness. Oh, by the way, the light comes from the sun. Hey, where? Yeah, I wouldn't mind uh, a little fierce heat at this point after a couple days of complete darkness. But these people are stubborn and rebellious in the face of discipline. They know this is discipline from God, uh, and, and they do not repent of their deeds. There, there's kind of, there can sometimes be this idea that in, particularly in grace circles, which we consider ourselves to be, uh, people who believe in grace, that God offers salvation to everyone on this planet, and we receive it. It is a gift of grace received by way of faith from God, uh, in, in our circles, there's this idea that, well, the Bible doesn't teach you to repent of your works. Well, it kind of does. These people did not repent of their deeds, it says there in Revelation 16, 11, meaning that we should. We ought to change our minds about our deeds. It doesn't mean that we have to think, oh, in order to have eternal life, I have to fully submit to God and make him the Lord of my life. And this kind of language that isn't in keeping with the scriptures, no, salvation, eternal life is based on a single condition, trust in Christ and what he did for you. Now then, however, you have a life to live and like it or not, you're not perfect. You sin against him, and you need to change your mind about that and not be stubborn and rebellious in the face of God and the potential discipline that can come from him in your life. God had a way of dealing with this in the Old Testament that, thank God, we're not living under the law. Deuteronomy 21, 18, if any man has a stubborn and rebellious son, who will not obey his father or his mother, and when they chastise him, he will not even listen to them. Then his father and mother shall seize him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gateway of his hometown. They shall say to the elders of his city, this, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of his city shall stone him to death. So you shall remove the evil from your midst, and all Israel will hear of it and fear. Praise the Lord that, that God re, uh, removed the need to follow this law in the person of Jesus Christ on the cross. But it is a reminder to us that God... God doesn't like evil. God doesn't like it when we live in rebellion, stubborn rebelliousness to him. There is, there is still a cost for uh, living in this way, whether you're a believer or not, sometimes, especially because you are a believer. Uh, we can sometimes look at the unbelievers and say, you know, well, why does God let them get away with that? How do these people have seem to have everything in this life? And here's poor old me. I don't have $50 million in the bank and I don't have a mansion, but this guy does and he's not a believer. Uh, you know, 
let's just consider our own path, deal with our own lives and the problems and sin that we have in our lives and just kind of let God deal with that person over there uh, the way that he chooses to, to deal with him and not be this person uh, who is stubborn and rebellious in the face of discipline from God. And this is kind of similar to the, the previous uh, bold judgment where it, uh, people can kind of worship the sun and worship creation. Oh, you like the sun? Here's a little bit more of the sun. Uh, in this case, the fifth bold judgment. Oh, you like darkness? You like living in the dark where nobody can see what you're doing and you can just carry on in your sin. Oh, here's total darkness. How do you, how do you like that? God seems to be uh, saying to them, may we not be like these people in our daily lives. That brings us to the sixth bold judgment, Revelation 16, 12. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way would be prepared for the kings from the east. Uh, again, here is another example of where this idea of recapitulation kind of gets it wrong. There is an army mentioned in the sixth trumpet judgment, Revelation 9, 14. Uh, if you'll remember one, uh, one saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river uh, Euphrates. And uh, okay, so there are some, some similarities there between the sixth trumpet and the sixth bowl. But if you'll remember, the sixth uh, trumpet was a releasing of that demonic army that went throughout the entire world and uh, ended up killing a third of mankind. And when we looked at the evidence, we kind of, we came to the conclusion that that's a demonic army, not a, not a human army. Whereas the sixth bowl is something different. There was no drying of the Euphrates river in that uh, trumpet judgment, there was a releasing of these four angels who are bound there that led uh, this demonic army throughout the world and killed a third of the world's population. The sixth bull, however, is allowing a path for a human army to come against Israel and the city of Jerusalem. I did, I, before, when I first wrote this, I had literal in there instead of human. Well, this one's pretty, this one's literal too. <laughs> a third of mankind is literally going to die from that army. It, but it's, it, yes, it's a literal army, but it's also a human army in this case. And speaking of literal, <laughs> the Euphrates, we have another geographical place being described here, the great river Euphrates. Now, when you read uh, some of the other persuasions of Bible interpreters like historicists, for example, they're going to put the sixth bold judgment in around the 1800s. And when it says that the Euphrates dries up, well, that's the, that's the end of the Ottoman Empire. That's what's being described there when the Euphrates River 
dries up. Okay, <laughs> that's uh, that's a nice way to think about it, I guess. But it but um, it's just there's nothing there that says it's like the drying of the Euphrates River. There's no symbolic language here whatsoever. There's no figures of speech. Verse ten. Uh, sorry, verse 12, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river, the Euphrates, and it dried up. No symbolic language there. It's describing something that is going to happen. And after all, the, the river Euphrates is a very prominent river throughout all of Scripture. It's one of the first rivers. It's original in creation. Genesis 2.10 says, now a river, Genesis 2, we're all the way back to the beginning here, before sin even. Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It flows around the whole land of Avila, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. The uh, bdellium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It flows around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates, is the Euphrates. <coughs> One of the first four rivers that are mentioned in the scriptures, the Tigris and the Euphrates. They uh, still today in large part kind of form. Uh, they flow through modern day Iraq and uh, are still very prominent Rivers, the Euphrates River, speaking of it being a literal place, it is the eastern border of the promised land. Did you realize that? The promised land isn't just uh, uh, west of the Jordan River. According to Genesis 15, it stretches all the way to the Euphrates. On that day, Genesis 15, 18, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your descendants, I have given this land. From the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. So if we think that God has literally promised this land to the nation of Israel, to the Jewish people, then, well, doesn't that mean that the Nile River and the Euphrates River have to be literal places? And when there's no kind of uh, figurative language in the text, we ought to take it as being a literal place. Why, yes, we should. And so just like every other geographical place that is mentioned in the book of uh, Revelation, like Ephesus and Philadelphia and Smyrna, the various churches that are mentioned, we have Jerusalem mentioned, we have Babylon mentioned, we have the Euphrates River mentioned. These are literal geographic places. And uh, this river is and historically has been a tremendous barrier that divides east from west. It, it's a, it is a big river that according to uh, uh, geogra geographers and historicists, uh, his historians, uh, the Euphrates River has never dried. It's never been completely dry. It's always been a massive barrier for people to get over or around. Like, for example, when uh, Abram made his way from the uh, Ur, the land of the Chaldeans, to 
Israel, the, the promised land, he didn't just go straight across. He followed the river all the way up and all the way back around to be able to make that journey to this place. This river is a tremendous barrier for people. And in this uh, sixth bowl judgment, it's going to be dried up for a specific purpose so that the way would be prepared for the king's of the east, these great powers in the world that are east of the Euphrates River. And it is being dried up for the purpose to allow them to invade Israel. And I'm not just making that up. Uh, next time, we will get to verse 14, uh, where it says that they that these uh, saw these uh, spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, verse 13, the mouth of the beast, for they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty, verse 16. And they gathered them, these nations, together to the place which in Hebrew is called Har-Mageddon or Armageddon how we typically refer to it. This river, this tremendous barrier between the east and west is going to be dried up to allow these nations to come to the earth or to come to Israel to invade them. So here on our map, you see Jerusalem, a literal place, and there's the Euphrates River kind of going up almost from the Persian Gulf and Babylon is on the east side of the Euphrates, and that's going to be taken away. So all of the Stan nations that hate God and hate Israel will be allowed to march to Jerusalem. India has over a billion people in it. They're going to be have a pathway right to the nation of Israel and Jerusalem. China is with its billion plus people. Uh, how many people are going to be in this army that is marches towards Israel? Uh, we learned about that earlier. A whole lot of them. Uh, where it mentions in Revelation 14 that when these angel or when these uh, people come in their armies to invade Israel, that the wrath of God is going to come against them. And the winepress, verse 20 of Revelation 14, the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. Well, <laughs> there you see, there, there are easily going to be a billion fighting age males, if you will, or females or he, she, Z, whatever you want to call it. By the time we get there, who knows what it's going to be. They're going to be easily a billion people can cross over that Euphrates River right into the nation of Israel and they will be judged and the blood will flow to the horse's bridle for 200 miles. You can just very easily, that can literally happen. We saw it was about a billion people will be required to have uh, that much blood and the way will be paved for that to very easily 
happen literally. And so today we see the stage is being set. Uh, these articles that we looked at in Sunday school, the coming together of Russia, China, India, all of those stand nations were mentioned in the one article having military uh, exercises together. Uh, these alliances are forming between Russia, Turkey, Iran, India, China coming together in alliances. Paganism returning uh, just on an open, blatant uh, scale. Uh, like you, know, you think, oh, the, the Greeks believed in these false gods? What? what? How could people be that deluded to think in this? Well, <laughs> ask your neighbor because there's a chance he might believe in it. Also, it's coming to the forefront. There is absolute moral degeneracy in this world. There are no words for, the, for the, uh, this moral degeneracy that is happening in the world today. So what does that mean for us? We need, as believers, we need to live for the Lord today. Titus 2.11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope in the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. If ever there was kind of a long passage that is, would be a really good one for you to sit down in your devotional time and memorize, Titus 2.11 and 14 is it. Because this, this is describing us today. We aren't looking for the Antichrist. We aren't looking for the false prophet. We are looking for Jesus Christ to come in the clouds, to catch us up, to meet him in the air and take us back to the Father's house. So we ought to be people who are living as if we've been redeemed from every lawless deed and purifying uh, the fact and, and living in a way that recognizes that Christ has purified us for himself, for his own possession. Let's go to him in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we've been able to look into your word. I thank you for the truth that we find here. As terrible as it is, this future that this world faces, we thank you for revealing it to us because in it we are warned of the consequences of sin and the fact that you take sin very seriously, not just in the future, but you take it very seriously in our lives. And I pray that the Holy Spirit would do his work in our hearts and in our minds and soften them and help us to turn from our deeds that are against you and your word and turn to you. The book of James promises that as we turn to you, you will come to us. As we turn from Satan, he will flee from us. Help us to do that today and each and every day in our walk with you. We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen.